And that's where we come to Jacob. And remember, Jacob's still not dead. Remember, all the other stories have ended with the patriarchs at death. But the fact that Jacob is not dead, but yet the Joseph story is over with, lets you know that the Joseph story is over with. But this is still the family of Abraham's story, and that hasn't been brought to an end. And so Jacob is time to give an oracle over his sons. This has often been labeled in your Bibles maybe as the blessings of Jacob. But when we read these blessings, some of them don't read like blessings. So it shouldn't be seen as the blessings of Jacob. So it should be seen as the last testament of Jacob or the oracles of Jacob. So the first thing you need to understand is he first goes to Joseph's two sons. And he asks for Joseph's two sons, Manasseh the oldest and Ephraim the second, to be brought into his presence. And Joseph brings them to him. And Jacob says, who are these? Now, first you're thinking, how do you not know who this is? You just asked for them. They're Joseph's sons. He's brought them to you. You think he brought like some little kids that he found in the street? Like, how do you not know? But then you're told that his eyes are weak and he can't see. So he's probably making sure that he knows where they are. Now, here's what's interesting. Where he deceived his blind father for the blessing, he's not getting deceived. Joseph has no intention to deceive his father. And this blessing is actually going to go well. And with this blessing and his other sons, he's actually going to make all of his sons present. Where Isaac was intentionally eliminating Jacob. So there's already a big difference between the way Jacob's doing the blessing and the way Isaac did. So he brings them. Now, your right hand was a symbol of authority and headship and power. So Jacob, Joseph puts Manasseh at the right hand because he's the firstborn, and Ephraim at the left hand. And Jacob switches hands and blesses the two sons. And he does something interesting. He gives Ephraim, the secondborn, the headship. Now, remember back a while ago, I told you that the firstborn blessing came with two things. First, it came with headship over the family or clan or tribe, depending on what it is. And it came with a double land inheritance. Jacob splits it. He gives Ephraim the secondborn the headship over Manasseh. And then he gives Manasseh the double land inheritance. Now, Jacob, Joseph, after seeing this blessing, immediately is like, no, Dad, switch your hands back. You got it wrong. There's a reason I put him over here. But remember, he can't undo the blessing. Isaac made that very clear. But he also makes it clear that this is very intentional. And this seems to be the way that God does it. God loves violating traditions. Be careful of holding on traditions. Because if there's anything you learn after, like, all the books of the First Testament, is God, like, violates every single tradition. If they're man-made, he violates it. And then he replaces it with his own tradition. And so he violates his tradition by blessing the younger with a headship title. But here's what's really interesting. Jacob says, I'm going to bless them and lift them up equal as if they're thy own sons like Reuben and Simeon Levi. Meaning that he's not just blessing the two sons of Manasseh and Ephraim, instead of Joseph doing it. Because you're kind of like, well, shouldn't Joseph get to do that? That's his sons. You're taking that away from him. 
The reason he's taking away from Joseph is because he's going to give Joseph's two sons more than Joseph can give him. All Joseph can give him is his inheritance. But Jacob is going to give the two sons his inheritance. And that means that he is making Manasseh and Ephraim equal to all the other sons of Jacob. And that will be important. And so Manasseh gets the double in inheritance and Ephraim gets the firstborn headship title. And he blesses them, equal to all of his sons. But then he makes Joseph promise that when I die, you take me back to the land of Canaan and you bury me there. And Jacob is making it very clear. I've obeyed God. I've come to Egypt. I'm going to be saved, but I want to go back to Canaan. That's where I belong. I learned my lesson. I do not want to be outside of Canaan. I'm going back. But it also shows that Jacob understands the importance of the promises of God the promises of God. So that brings us to chapter 49. So Jacob calls forth all of his 12 sons now, and he stands them side by side. And in verse 2 he says, Assemble and listen, you sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, the beginning of my strength, outstanding in dignity and outstanding in power. So you kind of get this sense that Reuben is a bull. Powerful, strong, but he just plows into things too. That's what we've seen. You are destructive like water and will not excel. You are powerful. You are mighty. You are supposed to be my gem as my firstborn, but you are destructive in that might. Now, this like water, this word is like frothy water. And the only time this ever appears in the First Testament is used to false prophets who intentionally go out to deceive people, which kind of puts a whole new light on Reuben's desire to save Joseph. For you got on your father's bed, and then you defiled it. You got on my couch. He gets nothing. Reuben gets land. He gets an inheritance just like all the other brothers, but he does not get the headship title. He does not get the headship, and he doesn't get the double land inheritance. He just gets a normal slice of the pie like all the other brothers are going to get. Why? Because he tried to seize headship by force by sleeping with one of Jacob's wives, Bilhah. And so he loses it all. Why didn't Jacob punish him all those years ago? Maybe we mentioned this before. Maybe he was afraid of this mighty, powerful Reuben. But now in his old age, he's about ready to die. So what is Reuben going to do to him? Kill him? So he just basically curses him. You get an inheritance, but nothing special. Simeon, Levi, our brothers. The word brothers here doesn't mean biological brothers, because that's kind of obvious. Brothers means like comrades in arms, like conspiracy, like joined to the hip. I, if they're closest thing, you're going to get to twins without being twins kind of a thing. Co-conspirators. Your brothers, weapons of violence are their knives. Oh, my soul, do not come into their counsel. Do not be united in their assembly. My heart, for in their anger they have killed men for pleasure and have hamstrung oxen. They are violent people. God forbid anybody who takes their counsel. Because they're just going to probably deceive you and stab you in the back for gain. They have killed men and they have hamstrung oxen. 
Well, there's no record of them hamstrunging oxen. But this word oxen, it's interesting how many brothers are going to be compared to animals. That's a common theme that comes up in a lot of these oracles. The oxen could be, a hamstrung means that you like slice the tendon of the back of the animal's foot in order to make it hobble, to cripple it. So there's no real reason that they would want to do that to their animals. And so in fact, we get the sense that they took animals for their own profit. But what's interesting is the word, remember they're getting cursed because they slaughtered all the people of the city of Hivite, the Hivites, when Dinah got raped. Hamor, Hamor means donkey, this, the leader. And kings were often called bulls or referred to as ox because an ox was a symbol of power and authority. And we see that image of bulls and authority all through America even to this day. And so it could be that he's referring to the leaders of this city, that they hamstrung those oxen. Or it could be that he's referring to himself, that it's like they hamstrung him as the oxen over the family by making him a curse to all the other nations when he was afraid that he was now vulnerable. So that could be the possibility here. But he says, Cursed are their anger, for it was fierce, and their fury, for it was cruel. I will divide them in Jacob, I will scatter them in Israel. Now this is interesting. Simeon and Levi get nothing. Absolutely nothing. They don't get headship, they don't get a double land inheritance, they don't get any land, they don't get any money, they don't get any animals. They are completely left without any blessing. Because they use the covenant of God to exterminate other people, they get no part in the covenant of God. And so they're left out. And he says, I'm going to scatter you. And if you go with the book of Joshua, Deuteronomy is the first place that the land is passed out by Moses. Joshua is the second place that the land is passed out. And in Numbers also gives territories. And these two tribes don't get any land. Simeon kind of dissolves into the tribe of Judah. And that doesn't mean that nobody knows that they're a Simeonite. They know that they're biologically Simeonites. They just kind of get dissolved politically and land-wise into the tribe of Judah. And Levi gets dissolved into everybody else. Now you're probably thinking, wait a minute, but weren't the Levites the priests? And weren't they like the most holy and the most special? Yeah, but you're going to have to wait for Exodus on that one. That was not God's intention. That was not God's intention, but something changes in the book of Exodus to change that. But as of this point, Levi gets no blessing whatsoever because of what he did, and they're violent, so they get nothing. Now he comes to Judah. He got lamb, but that's it, just a normal inheritance. Judah. Now this is it. Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Now, this is a pun because the name Judah, the Hebrew word for praise and the Hebrew word for hand all sound exactly the same, which is a minor pronunciation difference. So he's connecting Judah with praise and with authority all together with a common pun or a rhyme. Your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies, which is a symbol of power and authority. Your father's sons will bow down before you. Now, this is what's interesting. All the dreams, everything about the story so far has been about the brothers bowing down to Joseph. But now, 
Jacob is saying that the brothers are going to bow down to Judah. Because even though Joseph was picked by God to be the leader over Egypt and to save the world, Judah has been picked by God to be the leader over the tribes because he's acting like a leader. Not that Joseph wasn't, but that he actually took it. You are a lion's cub, Judah. From the prey, my son, you have grown up. He crouches and lies down like a lion, like a lioness who will rouse him. The imagery here is you're a lion who went out and you got your prey. You brought it back to your lair and you're sitting there with your prey and you're looking at people who are threatening you. You're just daring them to take what you have conquered. That's the image. You are going to become the protector who will destroy all the enemies that threaten the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant and God help the person who comes against you and threatens the kingdom of God. That's the imagery here. You are the guardian. You are not going to be made a ruler for power and wealth. You're made a ruler to protect your tribes. Just like Joseph was not made a ruler for power and wealth, Joseph was made a ruler to protect the tribes. God wants to bless you because he loves you. And he delights in giving you good things. That's why he calls them Israel or Isaac, God lasts a joy. But God also really wants you to use those blessings to bless other people and to protect others. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until it comes to the one whom it belongs. Okay, so the scepter and the ruler's staff are images of headship. And this is where you see Judah being proclaimed as the head over all the tribes. But then it says the ruler's staff will stay between his feet. Now, what does that mean? Feet are often used as a euphemism for the male reproductive organs, the genitalia. So the idea is the ruler's staff is going to stay between his feet. It's going to stay in his groin. Now, don't think weird or disgusting or perverted. The idea is what comes from the male reproductive organs? Children. And the idea is the ruler's staff is going to stay between his legs because it's going to stay with his children. No matter, it's not just Judah being made the ruler over the 12 tribes, but all of his children are going to rule the 12 tribes for this point on until it comes to Shiloh. Now, we have no idea what that word means. We're like, well, isn't there a city in Israel called Shiloh? Yes, but it's spelled differently. So there are a couple possibilities of what this could be. The Hebrew here, now you have to remember, the original Hebrew had no vowels. All Hebrew words were spelled with consonants and consonants only. Vowels were understood. They weren't written, but everybody knew how to pronounce the words. Like, think about it. Think about how many kids and how most people in the world know how to speak their language, but they don't know how to read or write. So, like, my, two of my daughters don't know how to read or write, but they know how to pronounce all the words. And most of Europe for hundreds of years did not know how to read or write, but they knew how to pronounce everything. So Hebrew is the same way. They didn't write the vowels, but everybody knew where to put the vowels in as they spoke it. And so the vowels were added later. So these consonants, if you take the vowels away, it can mean different things. And so somebody came in and put the vowels in later, which they did that with every word, and the question is, did they put the vowels in right? 
Okay, and that's, I don't, this isn't to threaten your confidence in the inspiration of the Bible. There's just a few places where we're unsure, but notice that most of this is spelling and word changes, but nothing changes theology. And so the question is, what vowel should be there? And you also have to remember that all Hebrew words had no spaces. There were no spaces between words in the original Hebrew because paper was super expensive and you don't waste paper by putting spaces between your words. And if you, you can do this. You can take a, 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 take a document that you've written and eliminate all the spaces and you'll still be able to read it. You can even remove the vowels and I guarantee you'll still be able to read it. You might struggle in a few places, but you can still read it without spaces and vowels. And so the question is, should these three letters be separated two and one, or should they be repointed? Because we don't know what Shiloh means. Some people have said, just leave it as is. And it means that the ruler is going to rule in Shiloh when they come into the land. But the problem is, the tabernacle lived in Shiloh for a while during the Judges period, but no ruler ever lived in Shiloh. And Shiloh isn't important anymore after the book of Judges. So it doesn't seem to fulfill any prophecy. So some have said, separate the three letters into two and one and rechange the vowels, and it will just say ruler. But the ruler ruins the rhyme between the two lines. It ruins the rhyme, and all this rhymes. So you know you can't ruin the rhyme because that's the only line that doesn't rhyme in the entire oracle. Others have said, keep it as is and repoint it to just change the vowels. And what it then says is the one whom it belongs to. And a lot of your translations go that route. That keeps the rhyme going, and it's the least amount of changes made to it. But the point is this. No matter what interpretation you take, it all points to a Davidic king. It points to the fact that Judah is going to be forever the ruler until the ruling position comes to someone that it rightfully belongs to. And so if anything, it speaks at its least, David, and then its greatest, the Messiah. And this is the first prophecy of a Messiah that we ever get in the Bible. And it will be, there's going to be one more in Numbers, another one a little bit later, and then we don't get any more until the prophets. It's the first hint of an ultimate ruler who God is going to endow with the right to rule, and he'll come from Judah. And this is the beginning of the Messiah prophecies. And then he goes on and says this, binding his fowl to the vine and his colt to the choicest vine, he will wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes will be dark from wine and his teeth white with milk. And on the surface you think, wow, he's going to be a raging alcoholic. He's tying his animals to wine. He's covered in wine. His eyes are stained with wine. But that's not the image. Wine was a symbol of life, an abundance of life. If you could afford wine, then you were really wealthy, which means you had the ability to relax and recline and not just survive, but to actually enjoy life. And the wine is used all throughout the Bible as an image of abundance. Christ talks about wine all the time in connection to the kingdom of God. And so the wine is joy and joy of life to its abundance, which means this. Wine is going to be so abundant in the land 
that you can tie a donkey to it, and all donkeys will always eat the vine. You would have to be a moron to tie your donkey to the vine, unless vines are so common you don't care about losing a vine because there's so many vines. But donkeys are also a symbol of kingship in the ancient world. Solomon was put on a donkey when they declared him king. Jesus was put on a donkey when he came to Jerusalem and they proclaimed him king. And the judges all sat on donkeys towards the second half of the book of Judges. It's kingship. So what this is saying is, this ruler, his kingship, is going to be known for an abundance of life and joy. He's going to tie his kingship to it. It's going to be connected to it. His eyes are going to be filled and overflowing with life and joy to the abundance. There was nothing in his appearance that attracted people but his personality. And Christ says, I have come to make your joy complete. And then he's going to clothe himself in joy and life to the abundance. And his teeth are going to be white like milk, because milk is that land flowing with milk and honey that's going to be talked about in Deuteronomy and Numbers and Joshua and Judges. And it's a land that is so blessed with rain that everything grows so tremendously, it's almost like you're living in candy land with rivers of milk and honey. It's blessings. And money, milk was really sweet. They weren't pumped up on sugar like us. They didn't have sugar. And if you ever had milk straight from the cow, it's sweet. And if you haven't been like dumbed down with our sugar overdose, then the milk would probably taste even sweeter. And the idea is his words are going to be sweet. Life and blessing are going to come out of his mouth. This ruler is going to be a ruler that has the right to rule, and he's going to bring joy, life, and blessings. He's going to fulfill the Abrahamic covenant, and that's who Judah is going to produce one day. And this is the first prophecy of the Messiah. Now all the other sons become minor. Most of the other sons, they hardly show up, just in census, like this tribe was there and that tribe was there. But all the other sons kind of disappear in their importance in the rest of the book. So he goes on to the next and says, Zebulon lived by the haven of the sea, become a haven for ships. This is a blessing. Zebulon doesn't ever end up living by the sea. So our best guess is that he also is in the center of trade, so it could be that he's just reaping the benefits of the sea because he's right in the middle of the trade routes. Issachar is strong boned donkey lying down between two saddlebags. When he sees a good resting place in a pleasant land, he will bend his shoulder to the bird and become a slave. So the oracle of Zebulon is a good, strong man. He's going to find great land to live in, but he's going to end up being enslaved in his own land, probably the Canaanites one day. Dan will be a judge over his people as one of the tribes of Israel. May Dan be a snake beside the road, a viper in the path. He bites the heels of the horse so that his rider falls backward. Now, this is a double entendre because the idea is that Dan is going to be a judge because Samson comes from Dan and becomes a judge. He's going to be a great attacker. Dan becomes responsible for protecting the 12 tribes of the north from many evasions that come all throughout the book. But he's also a viper that strikes people. And Samson's going to end up being a bad judge. It actually hurts his people more than he protects them. And Joseph, Jacob immediately says, oh, wait for deliverance. Who will help us, Yahweh? And so Dan, in some ways, is going to be a great blessing and protecting protector to Israel. But he's also going to be a great thorn in the side that will strike Israel. 
because Dan is also not only going to protect Israel militarily, but he's going to bring idolatry into the nation of Israel in the book of Judges and Kings. And so he's going to be a blessing and a curse to Israel, basically. Gad will be raided by marauders. Gad was known for being a great military warrior in the book of Judges. Asher's food will be rich. Asher was known for being great farmers who produced some of the best grain that all of Israel had. Naphtali will run free like a doe. He speaks delightful words. He'll be encouraging. Joseph becomes a longer one. Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough. Um, now, none of, none of the people are ever compared to plants. So it could be that he's a great vine that will be blessing to everybody, or the word could be repointed to mean that he's a donkey, a wild donkey, just like Ishmael, which means he's not going to be told what to do by other people. He's not easily influenced by bad counsel. So it could mean that. The archers will attack him, and they will shoot at him as he opposes him, but his bow will remain steady, and his hands will be skillful. Many scholars think that lots of people tried to attack Joseph, but God protected him. And none of their arrows stuck into him. And so that's what he's talking about here. Because of God your Father who will bless you, because of the sovereign God who will bless you with blessings from the sky above, blessings from the deep that lies below, the blessings of the breast and the womb. Now notice that up in verse 25 at the end it says, El Shaddai. Your Bible's probably says sovereign God. But notice he says, El Shaddai will bless you with the blessings of the breast and the womb. Remember we talked about in chapter 17 that El Shaddai might be a pun on the word breast. And now he literally says, may El Shaddai bless you with blessings of the breast and the blessings of the womb, meaning fertility, lots of children. And that's the connection here. The blessings of your father are greater than the blessings of eternal mountains or desirable things of the age-old hills. They will be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of the prince of his brothers. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. And the morning devouring the prey, and the evening dividing the plunder. And so he pronounces an oracle that Benjamin is going to be a force to be reckoned with too. Which, when you get to Judges, he is a force to be reckoned with, but a lot of bad things happen with the tribe of Benjamin. And the Benjamin is going to produce Saul, the first king of Israel, who will be a force to reckon with, but at the same time, a lot of bad things happen with Saul. So these are the oracles. These, verse 28, are the 12 tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them when he blessed them, and he gave each of them an appropriate blessing. This is the first time that Israel is ever referred to as the 12 tribes. Here's what's interesting. Two observations. How many sons are there? 14. Where did I get 14. The two grandsons got lifted up to equal status with the other 12, making 14. But in all your Bible studies, have you ever heard of the tribe of Joseph? No. Joseph is never called a tribe. He's never given any land because he ends up getting a double land inheritance through Manasseh and Ephraim. Because Ephraim is going to get land and Manasseh is going to get two portions of land, which means Joseph technically gets three portions of land and one of his sons gets the firstborn title. So that means how many tribes do you have? Because if you get rid of Joseph because he's not a tribe and he's replaced by two, what do you have now? Thirteen. There's thirteen tribes of Israel. Like, wait a minute. You mean God can't count? All throughout the Bible, it's the 12 tribes, but there's really 13? Because it's called a baker's dozen. And here's what's interesting. 
21 times the tribes are going to be listed in order. Now, here's a, there's 20, 20, not order, let me rephrase that. 21 times in the Bible, the tribes are going to be listed. From here to the book of Revelation is the last time. A multiple of seven and a multiple of three. Seven completion and three redemption. So it's through the 12 tribes that he's going to redeem the world. Every single time they're listed, they're listed in a completely different order. And here's how God does it. Later when Levi comes along, Levi is not considered a tribe technically because they're going to become the priests. So when God wants to talk about the military tribes of Israel, he has to have 12 military tribes going to battle. But Levi is not allowed to fight because they're priests. So you get rid of Levi and you split Ephraim and Manasseh and you have 12 tribes going to battle. Does that make sense? But when you want to include Levi and just the blessings of the 12 tribes, then you put Manasseh and Ephraim together and you call them Joseph, and now you have 12 tribes. Now, sometimes God gets really mad at one of the tribes and refuses to list them by name. Like at the end of Numbers, Simeon brings the Moabite prostitutes into Israel, and he's so angry at them that he refuses to list Simeon, so he splits Manasseh and Ephraim, eliminates Simeon, and now he has 12 tribes of Israel. Later in the book of Revelation, he gets so mad at Dan for bringing idolatry in the land, he refuses to mention them by name, so he mentions Manasseh and Ephraim, and he still has 12 tribes of Israel. So with a baker's dozen, he can split Manasseh and Ephraim, or put them together and call them Joseph, and whether he's mad at a tribe cursing them, or he's talking about them militarily and still need 12, or wanting to bless them all, no matter what, God can always have 12 tribes of Israel. And that's how it works. Technically, it's 13, but theologically, it's 12, because Joseph gets a double inheritance, and Judah gets the headship, and that's why there's 13, but it's still technically Joseph, so that's why it's really 12. Does that make sense? But then Ephraim also gets the headship, and Manasseh gets the double inheritance. So technically, Joseph gets three double inheritances, and now you have two leaders, Ephraim and Judah. Because when Israel splits into two kingdoms, who becomes the king of the north? The tribe of Ephraim. And the south, the tribe of Judah. Because God knows the kingdom is going to split one day, and he needs two rightful kings. And so God, beautifully, weaves 13 baker's dozen tribes into this thing. So that no matter what scenario appears itself, cursings or military or just blessings, he can always have 12 tribes. And Simeon and Levi technically don't have land, so Manasseh and Ephraim become the replacements for them. And it all works, no matter how you dice it, always works because God has anticipated our sin and he's accounted for it. And so this is the 12 tribes. Now we're done with the patriarchs because now they've all been blessed. 